Well, if I missed you last week, Happy New Year. This is the start of a new year for us. We are one week in, officially as of today. And this is one of those times of, of transitions. It's a transitional period within, within our calendar. As the calendar rolls over, as the season changes a little bit, and I know we're all excited to go back to school tomorrow, right? Yes, I know. Some of us had to go back to work a week ago, so we're a week ahead of you young guys on that one. But it is that time of transition, a time of change. And our minds tend to perceive this type of year as a moment of opportunity. Uh, Not only opportunity, but there's a time to kind of turn the page, if you will. There's an opportunity for a fresh start. And, And as the calendar turns from the 16th year of the century to the 17th year, we enter into that period and we have these thoughts of anticipation. What will this year hold? We also may have thoughts of fear as we think about that and questions because we really just don't know standing at this point, at this beginning stage of the year. Will this year be harder than last year? Will I be able to achieve my goals or will I be kept from accomplishing them and realizing them? At this point in the season, we're just not quite sure. And, And so these questions and these fears and these anticipations really is what leads to people wanting to make New Year's resolutions. Has anybody here made a New Year's resolution this year? Only a couple, and I'm not surprised by that because they get a bit of a bad rap, these New Year's resolutions. But one thing about New Year's resolutions is they always tend to be fairly optimistic. They, they tend to be positive. You don't quite often hear people saying, this year I'm going to start smoking. It, it's not, not sort of a negative type of resolution people tend to make. They tend to be positive and optimistic. But they also fall into two categories. They fall into the category of negation. So a New Year's resolution where we negate something. We decide to deny ourselves or to abstain, to give something up. You know, this year I, I, I resolve to lose 20 pounds. This year I resolve to stop smoking. This year I resolve to get out of debt. This year I resolve to eat less Doritos than I ate last year. That's a hard one. There's also the category of resolutions of addition where we're going to add something, a new activity, a new hobby, a new habit. You know, this year I resolved to exercise more, to take more vacation time, to spend more time with my family. This year I resolved to eat more Doritos than I ate last year, right? Resolutions such as that. Now, I don't know if you've made a New Year's resolution or not, but in the spirit of the season, I want to challenge some of you to do just that. I want to challenge some of you over the next two weeks to make a resolution of addition, into your lives. In fact, to make a resolution of addition into your spiritual journey that you may find yourself on. Because over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about two important steps that people need to consider making in their spiritual journey. That being the steps of baptism and then next week, church membership. Now, for some of us, these are past commitments. These are things that we've already done. And if that is the case for you, then I hope that these next two weeks will be a good time of encouragement, a reminder or a refresher of the importance of those things. Now, whether you have been baptized in the past or if you're a member or not, or if you're somewhere in between, part of the reason I wanted to start the year with this is because outside of a classroom setting, it's extremely rare for a church to dedicate teaching time on these topics on Sunday morning. Typically, there's a few people who show up at a class for a little while to hear about this. But very rarely do we find it a dedicated teaching time during Sunday morning. And yet, these are deeply important and spiritually significant steps that we can make in our lives. 
If you consider your spiritual journey, if you will, as, as a journey from, say, from Vancouver to Toronto, let's say, from, from life to death, from birth to death type of thing. Along that journey, there are certain points where you will stick a pin at different destinations of your journey to say, I remember when we went through Edmonton. I remember when we went through Winnipeg. It was forgettable, but we went through there. And all these different <laughs> points that we go through on this journey. Well, baptism, church membership, and other things are like those pins you stick on a map. It's a moment on your spiritual journey when you decide, I remember when. And I have fond memories. I have important memories that are associated with that moment on my journey. And so this isn't just a a technical teaching time. There will be more aspects of these messages that are a little more technical. Because it is teaching focus. It is a little more doctrinal, if you will, in some aspects. But there should also be an encouraging, a motivating, for many of you, a challenging aspect to these messages. As you consider, if I have not yet stuck that pin in my map, why not? And when should I do that? How soon should I consider sticking that pin in the map of my spiritual journey? So that'll be what we cover for the next two weeks. And then Nadine and I are going to be gone for a couple of days as we take off on a little bit of a winter vacation. And so we'll be, be away for two Sundays. But, uh, but we'll be with you for the next two weeks as we cover this. And we're going to start today by talking about baptism, about the importance of baptism. And now one thing about these is because there's not a lot of dedicated teaching, there's often a lot of misinformation. Uh, misconceptions, and that has also led to a lack of significance around some of these steps as well. And so I hope that these will be uh, informative and encouraging to you. So today we'll begin talking about this familiar, but for some people, confusing ordinance of baptism. Now right there, right off the top, I use the word ordinance. And I probably lost some of you already because that word ordinance, we don't know what that means. We may have heard it, but we don't quite understand what it means. But let's begin there. Let's begin by describing what is an ordinance. Now, an ordinance is a prescribed activity, ceremony, or practice. Quite often, something that is ordained or decreed by a deity with, with the purpose for us to personally and collectively engage in a deeply significant activity that is symbolic. So it's something that's been commanded or decreed or ordained, which is synonymous with the idea of that being commanded, for us to engage in, for us to participate in. And in the evangelical church, within, within West Meadows here, we count ourselves among them, we have two ordinances, two symbolically gospel-based activities, two things in which we see that Jesus has commanded us to individually and collectively be involved in. And those two ordinances, those two things that we see in Scripture are baptism and the other one being the Lord's Supper or communion. And and where do we see this? Well, we see this in Scripture very clearly where we see from the words of Jesus himself, he gives the command where he says, do this. It's a very clear command to do something. And that's why we have two of them because there's only two times when he specifically said, do this. We see, first of all, we see it in the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22, and then Paul repeats it in 1 Corinthians for us, where it says, do this in remembrance of me. And so we see that as an ordinance, something that Jesus commanded us to participate in, a do this type of thing. Now, the other one for baptism is a little more, a little more hidden in the verse, but it's very clear if we look at the, at the, the verse, which we'll do in a moment here. So which is... Um, Baptism, which we find the command for that in Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, if we were to dissect that verse, take time to dissect that verse, we would see that word go is an emphatic command. It is go exclamation point. You are to go. And what are you to go and do? You are to go and make disciples. How do you make disciples? You teach them and you baptize them. So it's an emphatic command to go make disciples. And the manner in which we make disciples is through teaching and baptizing in the name of Jesus. So we see again this go, this command to go do this ordinance. And if we read on through the book of Acts, we see that's exactly what the early church did. They followed that command of going and making disciples. And they taught and they baptized people. Now, so that's what an ordinance is. But what specifically is this ordinance of baptism? Well, for our purposes today, I'd like to suggest a definition to you of this. That baptism is a Christian rite involving water that publicly symbolizes a believer's identity with Jesus. Now, there's a lot in those words, and that was somewhat intentional. It's intentionally a loaded definition. And we're going to take a minute and pick this apart kind of piece by piece to come to understand fully, theologically and practically, what this ordinance of baptism is all about. Now, first of all, it's a Christian rite. Now, a rite is similar to an ordinance. It's a customary act. Uh, Quite often, rites that we find in different religious practices are based upon tradition. Somebody at some point decided a certain ceremony is a good idea. um, And we follow through on those based upon tradition. Now, we actually have some of those in the evangelical church. For example, child dedication is is a thing we commonly practice in, but there is no explicit scripture that says parents should bring their children before the church on a Sunday morning and dedicate that child. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's a good thing to do, but it's based upon tradition, not based upon scripture. Baptism, however, is different. Baptism, as we just talked a moment ago, is based upon a scriptural command to baptize. So rites don't always have to do with tradition. Sometimes they have to do with a very explicit command that we do find in Scripture. Therefore, when we're talking about baptism, we're not talking about something you participate in just to make grandma happy. We're talking about something you do as a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus explicitly said, go make disciples. How? By teaching and baptizing. So it's a matter of obedience that's associated with this Christian rite. Now, it's also associated with water. It involves water. That's not a foreign concept to us. If we've seen or even the definition of baptism has to do with water. But water's been used in different ways in different traditions. And you will see the different ways it's used referred to as modes. Modes of baptism. Different ways water is administered. And some churches will sprinkle. Some churches will pour Other churches, including ourselves, practice baptism by immersion, where we actually submerge a person in the tank of water. Now, why do we do that? If some are sprinkling, some are pouring, why do we choose to immerse people, to to submerge them in water? There's a couple reasons. Number one, the word baptize itself comes from a Greek word, baptizo, and The word baptizo means to dip or to immerse. Uh, The word means to surround with. And one of the classic uses of this word outside of Scripture was in the profession of a person called a fuller. It's not a common word we hear these days, but a fuller is a person who works with cloth, does certain things with cloth. 
And so a fuller would take a piece of white material, for example, and he would have in front of him a vat of purple dye, and he would take that cloth and he would dip it into the vat of purple dye, and when that cloth came back up, the white cloth was now purple because it had become associated with the dye in which it was immersed into. And the technical term that they would use in that industry was the fuller had baptized that cloth in the dye. So even outside of Scripture, outside of the spiritual understanding and practice of baptism, that word baptizo has a technical definition of to immerse, to submerge, to surround with water. So that's one reason. The second reason that we practice baptism by immersion is because that is the example that we see Jesus having fulfilled for us. At the start of his ministry, we see that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so we, as followers of Jesus, wanting to walk in his footsteps and to emulate his teachings and his life and his practices, should consider being baptized as following the example of baptism that he placed for us. But let's take that one a step further. Because if we also look at the language that is used to describe baptisms in the New Testament, including Jesus' baptism, we see that the New Testament authors, who were quite often witnesses, eyewitnesses to what transpired, we see that quite often the way that they describe it is they use phrases such as going down into the water. We see phrases such as coming up out of the water. And so they've used these descriptors to define what transpired as they give an eyewitness account of the baptisms that took place, including the baptism of Jesus. And so this gives us a picture in action of submerging in a manner that is in keeping with the definition of the word baptize. Now, these are all interesting points. These are all strong reasons to have described baptism by immersion. But if we were to get really technical and look at other passages in Scripture, there is a case that can be made that these are descriptors, not prescriptors. The difference being a descriptor describes something that happened. A prescriptor we find in Scripture, and it prescribes what a church should do. So one situation is describing a practice or a church at a certain time. It's saying, in this time, in this context, they did this. In other passages, we find a prescription, meaning all churches of all times should do this. So so far in what we've seen in baptism, what I've shared with you, these are descriptions, not necessarily prescriptions. But let's take it a step further, and we'll find even more convincing evidence as to why baptism by immersion, we believe, is the most appropriate means of which to do this. We take it a step further and look at this next bit in the definition I've shared with you here. Is that baptism is where a person publicly symbolizes their identity with Jesus Christ. Now to help us understand this one, the relevance of this phrase, I think it's important to go back and look at the consistent pattern of conversion and baptism that we find in the New Testament. And particularly in the book of Acts. And what we see time and time and time again in the book of Acts is that people heard the word preached, they responded in faith, and then they confessed that faith publicly through baptism. And listed on there, I know there's probably too many numbers there for you to write down, but I listed all of the references in the book of Acts where that pattern is followed to give you an example that this is not an isolated incident. 
This is not one pattern among many other ones. All the incidences of baptism that we find in the book of Acts follow this pattern. So it's not an isolated event or an optional type of pattern. It is the pattern that the early church saw and followed, where the word was preached, they responded in faith, and they confessed that publicly through baptism. So what does that mean? Well, just like many of you here, it means that at some point in a person's life, an individual came along and shared with them the truth about who God is. Shared with them the truth that God loves them. And in the process of describing God's love for them and his desire to be in relationship with them, they came to understand that all of us, without exception, are sinful. Meaning that we've all done something that has wronged God. And we've all wronged each other. And we know that when we wrong one another, it leads to relational separation. We've seen it in our own families, in our own friendships. We've seen that in businesses and in churches where we wrong each other and relational separation happens. But how much more so when we violate God's perfect standard, when we violate God's law. Again, a relational separation happens, but it's so much more significant and serious because it's a violation of God. And that puts a a, a rift between us and God, which is a problem that is beyond us to overcome on our own. But the solution was found in Jesus Christ, whom God sent to live among us, to teach us, but then ultimately to die for us, to pay the price and to stand in that gap as he died upon the cross. But not only did he die and be buried, but he also rose again, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday, symbolizing that he has victory over sin and victory over death. And now if we choose to place our trust and our confidence in him, we can become identified with him in that victory over sin and that victory over death. And the Bible tells us, that when we make that confession, when we make that decision within our hearts, that we become new creations, having died to the old sinful life we once lived and are now alive, spiritually reborn with Jesus Christ. And that, essentially, is what is symbolized when we go down under the water, become identified with that death and that burial of Jesus Christ, but then as we are raised up out of the water symbolically identifying ourselves with his victory and with his resurrection. When Nadine and I were baptized, the pastor even said, as we went under the water, he even said, buried with Christ, and as he brought us back up, he said, risen to newness of life, to go along with what was being visually displayed there. But not only do we find this as a tradition within the church based upon a command of Jesus, but Paul describes this theological symbol in this way in Romans chapter 6. When he says, don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory to the Father, we too may live a new life. We become identified with him in his death and resurrection, which is symbolized through the act of immersion in baptism. And so going back to that pattern that we find in the New Testament, in obedience to the command that Jesus gave us, all of us are to be identified with him by going public with our faith and confessing our allegiance to him through the rite of baptism. And for this reason, for all these reasons I've listed, 
and most importantly for this theologically significant reason, is why we feel as a church that baptism by immersion is not only an important step for people to take, but baptism by immersion is expressed and accomplished best through that particular mode. Now, I know that there are many here who have already professed this by entering into the waters of baptism. But I also know that there are some here who haven't. And you may be contemplating as I go through this and understanding what baptism is about, contemplating if this is something you really need to do. And so we're going to move beyond more of a technical aspect to more of the practical side of baptism a little bit. And we're going to consider this next question of who should be baptized. Well, there's a very simple answer to this, actually. Then we're going to expound upon it. The very simple short answer is all people who profess a faith in Jesus Christ, if you have made that profession of faith in your heart, you need to be baptized, is the short, simple answer to that question. But before we go any further, I want to share one more thing with you. Something I want to just make sure that we are clear on. That as important and as significantly symbolic as baptism is, baptism is not required for salvation. Now, I I even cringe as I say that because I wish it was. But I can't find scriptural basis to support to say it was. Exactly, I found things in a different direction. You see, Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient. His sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient to make a way for us to have salvation, to have that restored relationship with God again. All that is required on our part is to open our hearts, to open our lives, and to receive that free gift that's offered to us. Now, if we were to go in the direction of saying baptism is required for salvation, we encounter two problems. The first problem we encounter is it would sound like we're saying Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient. That at best it was 99% there, but somehow our traditional right had to top it up to 100%. Either his sacrifice was sufficient or it wasn't. And I believe that it was. That in Christ alone it was sufficient. That is why Jesus could look at the thief on the cross beside him and say, today I will see you in paradise. That man wasn't baptized but he had placed his faith in the one who made the way. But there's a second challenge, is that if we start moving in the direction of requiring baptism for salvation, we end up moving on a bit of a slippery slope towards salvation by works, even in just a small way. But saying that it's required means that something we do, something we perform is contributing to our salvation. And we read that this is not the case in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, where it says, it is by grace you have been saved through your faith. It is not from ourselves, nothing that we do ourselves, nothing we can participate in. It is a gift of God. It's something that he has done, he has completed, he has offered to us as a gift, not by our works. Because if it was from us, we'd start boasting about it. We'd start boasting about it. Therefore, as as difficult as this is to accept at times for some people, I, I do believe the doors of the kingdom are wide enough to allow entrance for even unbaptized believers. But let's get that out of the way for a second because I don't want you to think that just because you're not baptized, you get a hall pass on this one. That this is a critically important step for you to participate in. Just because it's not required for salvation doesn't mean you get a free, a free pass on it. You know, throughout the church history, throughout the world even today, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is a completely foreign concept. Outside the Western world, you do not find that idea of an unbaptized Christian. 
Even today, if you go outside of the Western world, you go to places in other nations, other continents, where the gospel is growing like wildfire. People are coming alive spiritually and accepting Jesus Christ. After they make that acceptance, after they make that profession of faith, they don't even question if baptism is the next natural step. It's not considered optional. It's not a question they enter into. Instead, they eagerly anticipate the moment when they can enter into those waters. They don't want to wait. Even in places where the nation, where the people are hostile to the name of Jesus Christ, even in places where making that profession in your heart and then publicly declaring it literally means that they are risking their lives. Even in those situations, they do not want to allow baptism to be kept from them. They know that once they become baptized, that people, such as their friends and their family and many others, will at minimum disassociate with them, but at worst would potentially, literally want to kill them because they become baptized. Even in those places, in this present day in which we live, those people will not even allow threat of death to keep them from being baptized. They have such a fervent for the Lord that they won't even allow death to keep them from being baptized. That is so different than the Western mindset that we find in our churches when it comes to this topic. And it's this this concept of, of baptism being optional is not something I can support. That while it may not be required for your salvation, I don't think there's a concept that we want to encourage of an unbaptized believer. But even as I say that, I understand that concept because I lived it and I know it. I understand it. I accepted Jesus Christ when I was five years old. I got baptized when I was 20 years old. Fifteen years I waited. Why did I wait? I can give you no other explanation except to say that I considered it to be optional and I was complacent in that step. For me, I thought, I believe in Jesus. I tried to live faithfully. I know I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did for me, so what's the point? Why, why, why be baptized? Well, consider with me for a moment that we equate baptism, we make it analogous to the act of marriage, let's say. Now, more than two decades ago, I first saw Nadine. And when I saw her, I thought, hey, I might get to know her a little better. And even though she rejected my attempts for the first little while, History proves that persistence pays off, right? (laughs) Because here we are. And see, from that point on, we started building together a meaningful, genuine, committed, loving relationship with one another. But as great and real as that loving, committed relationship was, it wasn't enough. She was pretty determined that we needed to get married. Now, marriage, as we know, is a relationship between two people that is based upon a loving commitment that they've made to each other. Before somebody pops the question, we understand that that loving commitment already exists and the question and the act emerges from that relationship that already exists. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, we already had that relationship. 
But we needed to take a step further to make that public expression of our commitment. And so the day came when we stood before our friends and before our family, when we stood before God, and we publicly professed our love and our commitment to each other. And in a meaningful way, in that moment, our relationship was sealed. In a similar manner, when a person is baptized, the inward love and commitment that they already have for Jesus is sealed by making that corresponding public expression of faith before witnesses. And so if you are currently in a genuine, loving, committed relationship with Jesus Christ, but have not been baptized, is it because you've seen it as optional? Is it because we have been complacent? And I would suggest to you, if that is where you find yourself, then at best, you're living common law with Jesus. That you need to get married. You need to take that step and to publicly seal that relationship through this act of baptism by immersion. So let's quickly review. Baptism is the next natural step of obedience for all people once they've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it is an outward expression of the believer's inward spiritual reality. It's the next step once you accept Christ. It's the next natural step. And it's an outward expression of an inward spiritual reality that already exists within you. So quickly as we move towards closing here, I want to just cover a couple of things. Over my years of being a pastor and talking about this with many, many people, I've encountered some common objections. Some common objections to baptism I just want to address uh, in with you all here. So if you have any of these, perhaps this would inform that. If you encounter some of these by talking to somebody about this topic, perhaps you'll have an understanding of how to respond to those. First of all, some common objections. Number one, what if I have a a fear of public speaking? That's probably one of the top objections I come across, is a fear of public speaking. Now, this is very common, because it is, in fact, one of the top five fears that exist from surveys that are done. The top five are a fear of death, a fear of dark, a fear of heights. Number two is a fear of public speaking. And number three, or number one, is a fear of flying. So the number two fear in the world is a fear of public speaking. So this is a very real fear. I find it humorous a little bit, though, because that means people would rather die by falling off a high ladder than they would rather stand on a stage and publicly speak. (laughs) Now, to some degree... We understand this is a real fear, but we also understand that in the world that we live in that we need at times to overcome this one. Whether that be a presentation we need to give at work, a presentation we need to give at school, whether you think getting married is important enough that you are willing to overcome that and stand in front of your friends and families and express your vows, or any other event in life that you determine important enough, there is evidence in each of our lives where we have chosen to push beyond that fear in order to practice whatever that event is. And I hope that you would see baptism at a high enough value that it's worth pushing beyond that fear. But there are also some things we can do to make it a little easier for you, if that is a fear that you have. Number one, I want to remind you that everybody who's witnessing your baptism is a fan. Everyone is on your side. There's nobody who's hoping you don't come back up. (laughs) Everybody is on side with you. And when you come up out of that water, that's what you're going to hear, is clapping. Secondly, if it is really, uh, there are actual psychological issues that are documented, people who have 
physiological reactions to this fear. If that is the case, we, will, we understand that's a very real thing for you. And we'll even go to the step of allowing you to videotape your testimony. And that means you can do as many takes as you want. We can edit it after if you want to. But we will even videotape that for you. But another thing to keep in mind is the water is really warm. <laughs> it's quite warm, actually. It's quite soothing. It's very relaxing to be in there. But there, there's all the things we can talk about as well. But I, I just want to encourage you, if that is a real fear for you, not to allow that fear to keep you from taking this important step in your faith journey. To push through that, to see the value in, uh, in your baptism. A second objection. I haven't got a good testimony. I get this one. I felt this one a little bit too because, you see, I, I think I have a rather boring story in a lot of ways. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad loved me. They took me to church. I accepted Christ at a young age. I wandered a bit through youth. But there was no trauma. There, there was no rock-bottom story. There was no visitation from angels, no man in white who visited me in a dream. Like, like I haven't got these things in my testimony. And so I think, you know, I, I got a pretty boring story. And, and other people might have a similar thought such as that as well. But here's what I want to remind you of. Your testimony is actually not about you. Your testimony is actually about God. And it's about God's love and God's saving action in you. Now, you're a character in the story. You have a role to play in the narrative. But even if there are no plot twists, even if there is no rocky past to confess and reveal, you are still a living, genuine example of how God reveals himself to people. And do not sell your story short. You have no idea how your story may be used by the Holy Spirit to touch a life. Do not prejudge the power of your testimony. So even if you think you have a boring story, share it. Because every story is a story of God's love and grace, which is worth sharing with those who are present. Number three. I want to make sure we hit this one. What if I was baptized as an infant? This is a very common one. I know there will be people here who were baptized as infants, and that that moment holds a special place in their lives. And I want to respectfully honor that decision that your parents made, that desire for them to have you raised in a Christian heritage. That's a wonderful thing for them to want you to be raised up in, and may even have an impact upon why you're here today, that they wanted you to be raised in a Christian heritage. Infant baptism, however, is different than what we're describing here today. Infant baptism is something that is done to a child, at the will of a parent. As I've been trying to explain to us here today, believer's baptism is something that a person chooses to participate in as an expression, as a step of obedience in response to the good news that they've heard. So it's different. And that's the main reason that we don't practice infant baptism here is because the baptism that we encourage is a response to the good news And obviously a child, an infant, does not have the cognitive ability to receive and to interpret and to respond to that. It's the main reason we don't practice that here. However, if you were baptized as an infant, I do not want to suggest to you that being baptized by immersion is fixing your baptism. It's not redoing your baptism because these are two actually very different things. They're not only different in method, they're actually different in theological significance as well. So it's not a fixing or a redoing. It is a completely separate thing. And I could go on and talk about some more aspects of that. But if that is your situation and it's a barrier to you taking that step of baptism by immersion, I invite you to come talk with me afterwards and we can expound upon it a little bit more. But they have different theological bases. And then finally, I'm not holy enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. 
I want to address this one by closing with a story. A bit of a narrative. A powerful king sits on his throne, judging people. Guards attend to him. Commoners wait in long lines for an audience with him. Suddenly the doors of the throne room just burst open. Heads turn and everyone gasps. And there stands two little boys. One is clean, but the other is covered in mud and he's crying. But with brazen boldness, the unsullied boy tugs the other one down the red carpet towards the throne. The guards pull their swords, waiting for a nod from the king to get rid of that filthy intruder. But the king holds up his hand, and his face softens to a smile. See, the clean boy comes up to the king's knee, and and he pulls his buddy along in close, and he looks up at the king, and he says, Dad, this is my friend. He's scared, and he's hurt, but I told him you could help. The king looks into the eyes of the muddy little boy who seems terrified, and he simply says, any friend of my son is welcome here. How can I help you? You see, we cannot come to God on our own merit. And we cannot make ourselves holy enough or make ourselves clean enough by any of our actions. We need to be escorted by the king's son, by Jesus Christ. So if you believe that you're not holy enough, not pure enough, not good enough to get baptized, on your own merit, you're right. On your own merit, you're absolutely right. But baptism is a symbolic step of recognizing our identity with the Son. Therefore, regardless of what you feel needs to still be cleaned up in your life, again, it's not a free pass to say you don't need to deal with that. It does need to be dealt with. But that's a longer journey. Right here in that moment, if you're identifying yourself with the Son, then no amount of self-cleaning will make you pure enough but Jesus Christ can. And so understanding that, we have even more reason, perhaps, if you feel you're not worthy, not holy enough, perhaps even more reason to want to be baptized publicly, to identify that association with the Son who makes us all clean. And we've covered a lot of material here today. There's a lot that I've left out. This is such a vast topic. There's a lot to take in and process, and so I'll just close with this right now. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not accepted that gift of love and forgiveness, that's the first step. I invite you to come speak with myself or with Pastor Luke or for youth. Speak with Ryan. Chat with him about this stuff after the service. We would love to help answer any questions you may have, perhaps even to get you plugged into Alpha, that you could continue your journey. Or to talk about what it would look like to make that profession and then move in the step of baptism. If you have recently or previously accepted Jesus Christ but not been baptized, I just want to ask you, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from doing that? Again, come talk to us. We would be honored to help you take that step of public profession and to seal that relationship with Jesus. And then finally, as the worship team comes forward, if you are a believer, if you have previously been baptized by immersion, I hope today was a good reminder to you of the purpose and the significance of of that moment that took place on that spiritual journey, that you had a chance to go back and to remember that pin you stuck in the map of your life on that day when you professed that publicly. And I want to close by drawing our attention to the final words of Jesus that include the command to baptize, because they also remind us all that the work is not yet done that there is still much for us to do as we go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. 
for the purpose that we may preach the word, that they may accept it, and then that they too may come forward and publicly profess that. Because Jesus told us to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He told us to go and to teach them and to observe all that he has commanded, including the command to go, to preach, to accept, and to baptize. So we're going to sing a closing song that calls us to reflect upon how we may apply this great commission. And then, like every week, we're going to walk through those doors, and we're going to go out into the world, and we have an opportunity to glorify God.